Good morning, church. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke, chapter 23. Our text will be verses 50 through chapter 24, verse 12. I think it was back in the late fall of 2019 that we began this journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we have, after today, Lord willing, two sermons left, and we will finish up those in the coming weeks. Next Sunday, you are blessed to have Pastor Mike Law, pastor of Arlington Baptist Church, will be here preaching. I will be at Arlington Baptist Church preaching, so we're doing this exchange kind of thing. We did that, I believe, last year, the year before, I can't remember, recently. And so, if, you've, uh, if you're in town, I hope many of you will be, and if you are in town, I strongly encourage you and your family to be here next Sunday. You will be blessed, encouraged. Um, Mike is a faithful expositor of God's Word, um, a gift to the church, and I'm, I'm glad that you are able to sit under his preaching ministry next week. And uh, I will be there so you can pray hard for that church there in Arlington. And so, this morning we have the privilege of opening God's Word together, and we're going to be considering our next passage here in Luke. Last week, we considered the crucifixion and death of Jesus, and now we turn our attention to his burial and resurrection. I want to pick up in verse 50 of Luke 23 and continue there. These are the words of the Lord. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found a stone. the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. They remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray for your spirit now to help us as we seek to understand it and be changed by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever had someone drop by unannounced for a visit, or maybe give you little notice about dropping by unannounced for a visit. 
What do you do when that happens? Normally, because we're such prideful people, we will run around the house cleaning up our mess, decluttering the counter, picking up the dishes, throwing clothes into baskets and tossing them into the bedroom, picking up the endless throw pillows. I don't know who invented throw pillows, but I would like to talk with them one day. It can be a tense time. Again, some of you are godly and you don't have that reaction, but many of us do. Well, Luke doesn't do that with this narrative. He doesn't try and tidy up the quote unquote mess. Luke presents the scene of Jesus just as it is. For example, in the aftermath of Jesus' death, we have disciples who don't remember what Jesus said and who doubt a report of an empty tomb. These kinds of details don't make for good press, and yet Luke shows them just as they are. Honestly, his, we could say this is the case with the other gospel writers as well, but Luke's honesty is actually a good reason to believe the resurrection. He doesn't go out of his way to tidy up the story to somehow make it seem more believable. He presents the account of the resurrection as he saw it, as he understood it, as the details were presented before him. This morning as we, as we take a look at the resurrection of Jesus according to Luke's account, and as we consider the impact of the resurrection, what we find here is this, this passage along with the other gospel writers is revealing the source of our true victory as believers. You see, while the religious leaders were celebrating their victory, they had finally put an end to Jesus, Jesus is actually the one who is victorious. He's not victorious because he's overthrown Rome or somehow undone the ungodly religious establishment. Jesus had a greater agenda, one that involved a kingdom, but a kingdom that looked nothing like Rome. The resurrection of Jesus, though, is significant to the triumph of this kingdom. In fact, had Jesus not risen, there would be no kingdom. I think oftentimes the resurrection takes a back seat, doesn't it? We are quick as Christians to emphasize the centrality of the cross the importance of Jesus' righteousness as he lived a perfect life, and certainly the atoning sacrifice that he presents on the cross as he dies in the place of sinners, taking upon himself the, the judgment and the condemnation of our sin, but oftentimes we leave off entirely the resurrection. Or we tack it on as a quick appendage. Oh yeah, and he rose three days later. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus had not risen, there would be no kingdom, there would be no gospel, there would be no hope. So as we look at this text this morning, a text that is central to the ministry of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, without this 
essential piece. There is no Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus is essential because it establishes true victory over sin and death. And as we look into this passage today, we're going to see that it's really, as Luke presents this to us, what we find here is really this, this account is a battle of faith. Are we going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and therefore have true hope or not? What we find here is that Luke gives us several facts about the resurrection that should lead us to believe it. And as we believe it, find Christ as our hope and as our victor. I want us to walk through several facts this morning. The first one that we're going to consider is found in verses 50 and down through almost verse nine or 10 of chapter 24. And it is this, that the resurrection is grounded in promise. Fact number one Luke gives us is the fact that the resurrection is grounded in promise. The bodies of criminals that were executed, especially executed on a cross, were typically left hanging and then at some point collected and cast into a common grave. But with Jesus we see that things unfold differently. With Jesus, we see extra care was taken in caring for his body. And so in verse 50, we are introduced to a man named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who took upon himself to take Jesus' body and give him a proper burial. Few things to note about Joseph that we find here in the text. One, and this is not insignificant, he's a member of the council. The council is the Sanhedrin, the same group of religious leaders that got Jesus crucified. Joseph is a member of that. We don't know, it seems like maybe he wasn't in town right at the exact moment of decision or whatever the case may be, but he wasn't part of this decision because we're told in verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and action. We also told that he was a good and righteous man, a man looking for the kingdom of God. So Joseph takes Jesus' body and according to Jewish custom, wraps it and placed it in a grave, a private grave. A, a grave then is different than our graves now, we know. A grave would have been a small cave-like structure, some natural, some man-made, but a cave-like structure in the side of a hill, closed off by a sliding stone and sealed. So being a righteous man and following Jewish law, Joseph makes sure all of this is accomplished before the Sabbath. Now, when you, when you look at this passage and you look at the, the account of the resurrection and you see all of the people involved, here Joseph, for example, we know that, that there are women looking on. We're told that in verse 55. So they see where Joseph lays his body and then they go and prepare to tend to the body of Jesus. But something that I think is very important for us to get that may be easy to, to not see initially is that yes, Jesus' body is shown much respect and honor. But even amidst all of that, there is no indication that any of these people, Joseph, the women, and certainly the disciples, there's no indication of an expected resurrection. 
all of those who watched Jesus die and then all of those who then after his death tended to his body, they are not preparing or anticipating a resurrection. They treat his body just like they would any normal corpse. There are many throughout the ages who have sought to disprove the resurrection and certainly even in Jesus' day and the disciples' day, there were those who would sought to deny and disprove the resurrection. And they'll often point to several things and we, we could do a whole class or a long study on the, the, the reasons that have been fabricated or given to, to make it seem that Jesus was raised when in fact he wasn't. So there's this denial, but a couple of them is, is this idea of fabrication. One, uh, some will say that the early disciples fabricated this idea of resurrection to allow the memory of Jesus and his teaching to continue. If that's true, which it's not, if that was true, this seems like an odd way to go about fabricating a resurrection. These early disciples were not expecting a resurrection. They saw Jesus die and they assume that's it, that he's gone. There's no attempt to fabricate anything. Some will often point to, well, Jesus was, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, we know that that's disproved here because Joseph takes Jesus' body and lays it in a private tomb. And we're told that the women who were with him saw exactly where the body of Jesus was placed. There's eyewitnesses to that. So what we find is that Luke takes great care throughout this account to demonstrate the reality of Jesus's death and then to validate the reality of his resurrection. But then he does so. He does so as he shows the lack of faith, the lack of hope, even among Jesus's close followers. I think it's important for us to see this. Joseph takes the body and gives Jesus a proper burial. The women prepare burial spices. They take a break on the Sabbath and are ready on the first day of the week, as we're told in chapter 24, verse one, to go and tend to his body. The disciples are back somewhere having a pity party. There's no anticipation of a resurrection. I think it's important for us to see this because Luke is reminding us that even those who were closest to Jesus, even Joseph, we're not sure exactly of his status, we know he was a good and righteous man and he was anticipating the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. But none of these seem to give any indication that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. So it reminds us that even those closest to Jesus, those who had seen him perform miracles, can still lack confidence in what God is doing in the present. Even when things seem so final and bleak and dark, from a disciple's vantage point, we're, we're seeing here that God is still at work that God is still moving, he is still working and accomplishing his purposes. When we continue on into chapter 24, we see the women make their way to the tomb and tend to the body of Jesus. In verse 24, verse one, and when they get there, verse two, 
they find a scene they weren't expecting. The tomb was open. The stone was rolled away. And when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. It's important, though, that we see as they come upon this scene, verse 4 is, is, is instructive because it says, while they were perplexed about this. So again, they're confused. They're, they're not expecting this. They're perplexed. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground. But notice what the two men, we know they're angels. If you look later on in the chapter, in verse 23, that's told to us. If you look at other gospel accounts, we know that these are angels. But notice what the, the angels say in verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. These angels point back to several occasions. You can go actually in the Gospel of Luke and see these. We've walked through these in Luke chapter 9, verse 21 and 22, and then in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. On these occasions, Jesus, out of his own mouth, had said to his disciples, the very thing that we see here in verse 7, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. I'm going to die, but on the third day I will be raised. So the women recall this. We're told, verse 8, they do remember his words at that point. And as such, they run back to the other disciples. But look at the disciples' response. Verse 9, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But, look at verse 11. These words seemed to them an idle tale. They weren't buying it. These apostles, these disciples. Friends, their, their initial response, the initial response of the women, they're perplexed, they don't understand what's going on, and the initial response of the disciples, this seems like, a, like, a, like an idle tale, is instructive. We, we should not overlook this. I mean, typically, they've been open to miracles. They've participated in miracles. These are the same men who watched Jesus do all kinds of miracles, even raise the dead. But on this occasion, they needed to be persuaded. Now, let's be honest. The doctrine of resurrection is not an easy one to, to embrace. Dead people coming back to life just doesn't happen a lot. I mean, there's not a Netflix series called Resurrection with 10 seasons of interviews of people who've been resurrected. You're just not going to find that. It's not very common. And so it's, it's a doctrine that is difficult from a human perspective to get our mind wrapped around. And so on one hand, we shouldn't be so surprised that they're questioning the validity of an empty tomb. However, Jesus had told them not once, not twice, but three times at least, that this, in fact, was going to happen. So when the angels say to the ladies, 
remember how he told you. What do you, what do you see the angels do? What they're doing is that they're helping the women and then later we'll see the disciples need the same thing. They're returning them, not to some source of emotional re response, but they're returning their attention to the very word of Christ. That this has happened just as Jesus said it was going to happen. That their confidence in the reality of the resurrection should not merely be in what they're, not merely been in what they're experiencing, though that was true, their confidence should be in the fact that God's word had said this was going to happen, and it did. Brothers and sisters, we're reminded from this that when God makes a promise, we need to take him at his word. Even if his word seems like a stretch. This is a lesson, I think, in how Christians can, disciples can often question God's word, deny, practically speaking, the sufficiency of God's word. We can find ourselves doubting it or even forgetting it altogether. The disciples clearly are not remembering the scripture, they're not remembering the very words of Christ. Christ even quoting the Old Testament scriptures to, to make this point, they're, they're not recalling they're not putting their hope in that. So the actions of the disciples show us how easy it can be to forget the promises of God and how we must keep God's word ever before us. Think about that. I know we're on this side now of the resurrection, but same thing with the second coming. Think about Jesus has promised to come again. He, he said he's going to return. So there's a promise yet to be fulfilled that Jesus is going to come again. The disciples, huddling up in despair in some room after Jesus has died, would be no different than us today living lives that are not anticipating or expecting the second coming of Jesus. Think about that. Does the life we live reveal our anticipation of that promise? Or do we look more like the disciples between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? In reference to the disciples' slowness to believe, J.C. Ryle wrote, this dullness of memory is a common spiritual disease among believers. The cure for a dull memory in religion is to have deeper love for Christ and affection, affections more thoroughly set on things above. We do not easily forget the things we love. And the objects which we keep continually before our eyes, the more our affections are engaged in Christ's service, the easier we will find it to remember Christ's words. Brothers and sisters, there will be plenty of times where we will face doubt or fear or confusion in this life. And if we aren't keeping our minds firmly rooted in the promises of God, we too will be overcome by present circumstances and fear and doubts will creep in. Listen, the Lord is, he's given us all we need to know. He's revealed to us how all of this is going to shake out. It doesn't just shake out. God's sovereignly working. And if we take our eyes off his word, 
off his promise, then we will struggle to persevere and remain joyfully confident in the face of adversity, suffering, persecution, and brokenness in general. We will, we will be shaken when we take our eyes off the promises of God. Again, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. There are times that we forget the Bible. We forget God's word. We forget God's promises. And our actions demonstrate that. One of the reasons that we forget God's word is because we don't read it all that much. It's hard to remember something you're not regularly consuming. It's hard for your affections to be centered upon one that you're not engaging regularly. So friend, I just ask you simply, what are you doing practically speaking to keep God's word and his promises regularly before you? And I'm not here to, to make you feel super guilty. If you've not read your Bible in two weeks or two months or two years for that matter, my goal here is not to say how bad of a Christian you are. Okay, just repent, pick the Bible up and start reading it. Start reading it, start reminding yourself of what God has promised you. Hold fast to the truth of God's word. So what had happened with the disciples and with the women here in this, this account is that they had taken their eyes off the promise of Christ and their actions were demonstrating that they weren't holding fast to that. They had completely taken their eyes off the promise. And so resurrection, the truth of the resurrection is grounded in God's promise, a promise that even those closest to Jesus had neglected. Let that be a lesson and a warning to us. Second fact that we see here regarding the resurrection and why we should believe it is that it was confirmed through witness. You see that here in chapter 24 and so forth. As Luke walks us through the development of the resurrection and the impact it has on the disciples, he underscores the importance of the eyewitness account of the empty tomb. This is huge. The first to encounter the resurrection, we're told, are the women. Three in particular, there are likely others with them, but Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, mother of James. And after they encounter the empty tomb, they're, remember, they're going to tend to the body of Jesus. They show up, the, the stone's rolled away. They look in, the body's gone, the cloths are there. So they go back and they tell the disciples exactly what they had seen. And so when they go back in verse 11, they tell the disciples, and <clears throat> Luke tells us, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. We know John was also with them because of John's account. <clears throat> but Peter goes, runs to the tomb to see for himself. And that's exactly what he finds. We're told there, Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. The witness of these early eyewitnesses is important. First, you, you have the, the, the witness of the women. And their eyewitness account is important on a couple of re for a couple of reasons. One is that they're the very first ones to encounter the empty tomb. Like they're there right after it's happened. Another reason it's important because in that, because in that culture, women were not very highly esteemed. So when, we, so when the gospel writers include them as the first ones to encounter the empty tomb, they're not exactly making, in first century argumentation, they're not exactly making the best possible case for first century readers. Yet we know the presence of these women also show 
the value Jesus placed upon women in his ministry. Even though they were considered second-class citizens in the first century, Jesus affirms their priority and involvement and place in his ministry. We know that from other gospel accounts that Mary, later on, you can read this in John 20, she goes back and tells the disciples, the disciples run, and then after that, they run off, marveling at what had happened, and Mary remains, and she actually encounters Jesus in his resurrected body. She encounters him directly. And so these women become the first ones to encounter and proclaim the good news of Jesus' resurrection. And then Luke focuses on Peter's experience and documents how Peter comes to the tomb and he looks in and he's encountering this reality for himself, the linen cloths, but no body, which again kind of puts away from the, the stolen body theory that they removed his body and put it elsewhere. Why would they leave? The, the, you just wouldn't unwrap the body and leave the cloths there. So the linen cloths were evidence to Peter that Jesus' body wasn't stolen, but had indeed been raised. The gospel writers make it a point to highlight the various eyewitnesses to those who read the gospels, so that those who read the gospels can have first-hand confirmation of the resurrection's reality. Remember, none of these early eyewitnesses expected Jesus to be alive. And now they encounter an empty tomb and they see him. And as such, friends, we should be grateful for these early eyewitnesses and take comfort in their report. The church is very much riding on the shoulders of these women and John and Peter and the early disciples who were firsthand witnesses to the resurrection. And therefore, through their eyewitness account, we can have confidence in the validity of the resurrection. So you see the two things that have happened here. One, that, that God has promised it was going to happen, and it did, and then it's validated through these eyewitnesses. But we would be remiss if we did not look further at how the resurrection impacts us and serves, number three, as the guarantee of our hope. Resurrection is the guarantee of our hope. Once Peter sees for himself, in verse 12, we're told that he went home marveling at what had happened. And one of the things that happens as a result of them encountering the empty tomb and then later the resurrected Christ is that the lives of these early disciples, the lives of Peter and John, the, the women, the rest of the disciples would never be the same from that point on. One of the things that you see unfold, not just in this account, just in their marveling and in their, their immediate response to the resurrection, what you find throughout the rest of Luke and in the sequel to Luke in the book of Acts, is that the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for these disciples. And the reason it changed everything for them is because it became the very foundation of their hope. A couple of things I want us to see this morning regarding that hope. Because of the resurrection, first of all, we have hope in the present. We have hope in the present. Once the disciples realized that Jesus had risen, and once they had remembered his word, 
about this very thing, pretty much everything for them changed. This same ragtag group of disciples that were doubting and moping around became a force to be reckoned with. Again, if you were to read the book of Acts, you would see exactly how the resurrection transformed their lives. You see, it becomes the very core of, of Peter's sermon. If you were to look to, to Acts chapter two, Peter, remember, same Peter we're talking about here in Luke 24, preaches a sermon in Acts chapter two, where no, it's known as the sermon at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. And there in the midst of that sermon, he says in verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, then notice what Peter does. He goes back to the Old Testament and gives Old Testament support for the truth of the resurrection. For David says concerning him, he quotes David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make full gladness with your presence. And then he continues, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. It's like, I can take you to David's tomb. Being therefore a prophet and knowing, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise, Holy Spirit, he has poured out on you this day. You yourselves are seeing and hearing, and so forth. It becomes the very core to Peter's gospel proclamation. You see it in Paul, and, and again in Peter. Peter writes the, the letter of 1 Peter. In chapter one of that book, in 1 Peter 1 verse three, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, these men gave themselves sacrificially for the sake of Jesus because the resurrection was true. I wonder, friends, if the same could be or would be said of us. Does the resurrection compel you to give yourself for the kingdom of God, regardless of the cost? Or are you guilty of living like the disciples did between Good Friday and Easter? Even after the resurrection, we can live all these years after the resurrection, our lives can, can, can look as if it's not an accomplished fact. You consider the suffering and impact of the fall all around us. You see a world that's far from God. 
Your hopes, maybe for your family, aren't what you expected, or your career, it's not what you expected. Maybe your church, not what you expected, or your ministry, not quite what you expected. And if we're not careful, we can look no different than these grief-stricken disciples moping around between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But listen, friends, Jesus has, in fact, risen. He lives, he reigns, and he's promised to come again. So therefore, do not fix your hope on things that will not last. And sometimes even for Christians, our hope ebbs and flows based upon lots of different things coming and going. Our hope must not be rooted in the things that will not last. Brothers and sisters, if your hope is fixed on anything or anyone else other than the resurrected Christ, it will not last. Paul writes of all of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in that glorious chapter It's a long one, 58 verses about the resurrection. And then Paul's conclusion at the end of that chapter, he's talked about the importance of the resurrection. He's talked about how if Christ is not raised, our our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. How's that for hope? If Jesus isn't raised, there's no hope. That's what Paul says. And then he makes all of these arguments as to why we can know that he has been raised. And at the very end of that chapter, Paul concludes, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, you're lo- that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see what Paul does? He says the resurrection of Christ is the very foundation of who we are as Christians illuminating our hope and understanding of what we have in Jesus and what we have expecting uh, in the life to come. And he says that has present implication. Because of that, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So we have hope, a hope that informs our present. We also have hope for our future. The one thing the resurrection teaches us is that death is not the end. There's coming a day for those who are in Christ that we too will be raised. We have a future when our bodies will be made new like Christ in glory. Again, go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and read all about the details of what Paul has to say about that. But we can look very quickly to John chapter 11 John chapter 11 is one of those accounts where Jesus goes to a scene after a funeral where his friend Lazarus has been, has died and has been buried in a tomb very similar to the one he would be laid in. And as Jesus makes his way there in John chapter 11, he's confronted by sister of Lazarus, Martha, as to basically why Jesus delayed and took so long getting there. It's too late. Lazarus is dead, and Jesus responds to her. Before Jesus Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Listen, unless the Lord returns, we all will face death. All of us. Friends, death does not have the final word. Death often feels so final, but it is not because Jesus defeated this great enemy. And as he promised, though we will surely die, 
if we're in Christ, yet we shall surely live. Love what Jackie Hill Perry, speaker and author, recently wrote. She said, death is strange and unnatural. We desire permanence as we should, but here what should last doesn't. People we know leave. The shock of it tells us this shouldn't be the norm, but it is for now. But there is coming a day when even death will die. Friends, that's encouraging, isn't it? When you think about the testimony of the scripture, there's, there's coming this day that even death, even death itself will die and be no more, and we will be with the Lord forever. This is the great hope we have as Christians. And friend, if you're here today or if you're watching and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is your hope. He is the only hope this world has in life and in death. Jesus Christ lived a life of righteousness, died a death in the place of sinners, three days later was raised from the dead declaring his victory over sin, over death, over hell once and for all. And if you would put your hope and trust in him, if you would turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, believe him to be the son of God who came for sinners, your sins will be forgiven and you will be given this very hope, hope that will inform your present, but a hope that will last well into eternity. Well, by the time we get to the end of this scene, the time you get to Luke chapter 24, verse 12, things have started to change. The tomb is empty and the disciples, their heads are spinning. They're taking it all in. They're marveling at what had happened. Their lives would be forever changed. What seemed to be the end was only the beginning of a great work God would do that would expand far beyond these early disciples in the walls of Jerusalem. A work that would lead its way all the way right here to you and to me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a game changer. In fact, it's the only game changer that can alter your life in the present and give you hope for everlasting life in the future. It's a truth that's grounded in promise. God said it would happen and it did. God raised Jesus from the dead and showed his victory over death and hell once and for all. It's confirmed by these eyewitnesses and it becomes the very foundation of our hope as believers. So brothers and sisters, we have reason to live. We have reason to rejoice. We have reason to live lives of faithfulness and confidence of what God has done for us. So as Paul said, because of this, therefore my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain because Jesus Christ lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for hope, for confidence, for truth, and for how all of that is seen and declared in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is not some myth that we've made up to somehow give us 
a false sense of hope, Lord, this is true. So Lord, this morning, we, as we think about the importance of the resurrection and its implication, its impact on our lives, Lord, my prayer is that it would, that it would help us in moments of fear and doubt and worry and pain to have hope and not despair. Lord, in moments of complacency and apathy, Lord, that we would be reminded that we have a savior who lives and who sits at the Father's right hand even as we speak, interceding for us. And that this truth would ignite in us a a newfound joy and faithfulness, just like it did the disciples. And that we would go and do glorious things, not for our name, but for the name of Jesus throughout the world. Father, it may be that some are here or watching that they've never put their hope in Christ. And maybe for the first time today, they see their sin for what it is. And they understand that if they are to be reconciled to you, that their only hope is Jesus. Lord, would you move upon them today and save them and bring them to faith in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you reign, that you live. That very fact even informs what we're doing now as we're praying. We are praying not to some, something that's dead. We are praying to the living God who has shown himself faithful to pursue sinners and to give himself for our sake, that we may have joy and hope forever. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.